Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. Today, we are revisiting the subject of happiness in the digital era. We are in a difficult period right now in the world, hyperinflation, economic distress, a war in Europe, stress, all sorts of reasons why we are stressed and maybe not as happy as we normally would be. In the midst of all of this, how do we maintain our sense of contentment and still maintain or even improve our happiness? Amy Blankson was one of our very first guests on AIM Higher, and we wanted to bring that back to your attention. She shared a number of excellent tips to focus on the positive and reach for happiness even in the midst of difficulty. Listen into our conversation and then take time to develop your own happiness plan. Well, today I am here with the only person to be named a point of light by two presidents, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. And of course, I can't say point of light without immediately thinking of Dana Carvey, but that's a whole nother story. She went to Harvard. She went to Yale. She's a co-founder of Good Think. She's all about bringing the science of happiness to life. She's the author of Ripple's Effect. She's a professor on Oprah's happiness course. She has an awesome, awesome book out, which is one of the few books I keep within striking distance of my desk because I refer to it often. It's The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. And she is here today to talk about some of my favorite subjects, things that we all need to know more about, happiness, well-being, productivity, and all of this in this digital era that we're in. So please welcome Amy Blankson. Amy, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm so glad to be here with you, Skip. Well, this is this is great. And you know, I've I've heard a lot of interviews with you, re- read your book, of course, and have followed you for a long time, watched your TED Talk and other uh, social media posts that you have. But a lot of people aren't thinking about this. So even though you're living it and we're thinking of it a lot, I just want to stop for people who aren't thinking of it and just no, I asked the basic question, is the rise of digital, the digital era, the rise of social media, the rise of technology, is that the biggest disaster when it comes to our happiness and well-being, or is it the greatest opportunity? Which is it? Oh, I love that question. And to answer you, I'm going to quote William Shakespeare, who once said that there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And when I think about that quote, it really hits home for me because truly we are living in a time where we are more overwhelmed and fragmented as a society than we have ever been in history. The average smartphone user picks up their phone 150 times a day and every literally every text message that comes in causes us to double our error rates on basic tasks and feel less connected to the people and the tasks at hand. We know this, and yet we also all innately know and have seen through personal experience how beneficial technology can be. And I recently went back to Japan with my family this summer, um, and it was for me a 20-year anniversary from a fellowship I went to in college. And it was strikingly 
different in Japan this time around because there was Wi-Fi, there was GPS, there were smartphones, so I could learn about the environment, I could navigate, I could communicate, and all of that was beautiful. And yet, these distractions permeate our existence. And part of why I wrote my book is because I felt a deep call to bring this issue to light for individuals who may not be thinking about the levels of digital distraction um, and who might feel a little bit disempowered, feeling like the world is evolving and we're just along for the ride and there's nothing we can do about it. I want to call... call people out on that because I want to call them to a sense of agency about what we can do with the environment and the time we're living in. And wow, what a gift it is to live in this time where for the first time ever, we are understanding our own minds, our own humanity in entirely new ways thanks to technology, MRI machines that help us peel back the layers of our brain to really understand what makes us tick, what makes us stressed, how can we decrease our stress, how do we become smarter over time, how do we increase compassion. These are things that technology is helping us understand, but we're going to have to strike a balance to get to the ultimate best use of this technology. That is such a compelling answer. So many things there. And you're talking about Japan, and I'm thinking about my last visit to Japan. Beautiful country. And that same attitude, it makes me laugh because I was there and I was thinking, I'm doing some tours, and I was a little bit annoyed by the buzz and the technology and, of course, checking, and I think I'm way over your average of 150 (laughs) times per day, but I'm there and I'm annoyed, and then all of a sudden, I'm friends with the ambassador, our ambassador to Japan, the Honorable Bill Haggerty, and I was going to visit his residence there in Tokyo, and all of a sudden I had to use the technology because I couldn't figure out the way in. What's the way into the private residence? (laughs) Uh, And and I'm trying to meet these people on the street, but they didn't speak English, or at least they said they didn't in in whatever language they were using. I assume Japanese, but that's how little of it I know. So I'm using translation services. And all of a sudden the technology was my greatest friend, right? And immediately they were like, oh, and they, you know, could help me uh, get in. So in the same day, literally in the same hour, technology went from being really annoying to my savior to get me into the right place. So I, I appreciate that example that you gave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny. I think about this very dichotomy between using technology and not using technology and needing to pull away. Um, with my experiences of the National Day of Unplugging last year, it was uh, March 1st through 3rd, or 1st through 2nd, actually, last year. And the National Day of Unplugging is this uh, holiday that is born out of a tradition of Tech Shabbat in the Jewish community. And it's since grown beyond the Jewish community to really focus on a global call to get people to just unplug for 24 hours so that they can refocus on something else that they want to do in their life. And so ironically, I happened to pick this day of unplugging on the day that I went to a conference called Wisdom 2.0, which is all about mindfulness and technology. And the conference itself, their entire agenda was trying to save the trees. So everything was online. And this is the one day (laughs) that I've decided (laughs) not to have my phone on me. And so I felt so lost, even at this conference on wisdom, because I couldn't navigate 
where I was going, where the bathrooms were, where the best speakers, how to get to my next session. Um, and I think that, that that irony really hit home that evening when we went out for uh, with drinks with some friends and all of my friends were also unplugging. And I managed to have a backpack that was identical to my friends, which we somehow got mixed up in the coat check. And <laughs> so the person in coat check gave me my friend's bag that had her wallet and her phone in it. And my friend had my wallet and my phone. We got separated. And I couldn't find any way to call my friends to tell them, hey, grab my bag before the bar closes because they were all unplugged and I couldn't get an Uber. I couldn't check into my hotel room. It was such a comedy of errors because I'm so dependent on this technology and yet it's so doggone useful. <laughs> I, uh, I think this next year I'm going to have to plan much better before I try to unplug um, some strategic backup plans perhaps. It's amazing. Yeah, the National Day of Unplugging ends up causing some stress, and, and yet we realize how dependent we are on it. And at a Wisdom 2.0 conference, is that going to be an annual event, the National Day of Unplugging? It is, yes. I'm not exactly sure of the dates for this coming year, but it is a, a um, repetitive um event that happens every year. I think it's been going on for about a decade now. And I think last year there were 800 events worldwide taking place with groups organizing um, official National Day of Unplugging parties or gatherings where people could choose alternate activities like going out on a hike or choosing to go out with some friends or taking some time to meditate and journal and step away from the daily busies. So uh, I really appreciate what they're trying to do with that. And I'm going to participate again this year, but like I said, with a little bit better strategy. I think it's great. I, I did see uh, once before, at least once I remember the National Day of Unplugging trending, and I wondered how can it be trending if everyone is <laughs> unplugged? But I will leave that to the, uh, the wiser people. So you, you have these great strategies in your book, five strategies for balancing productivity and well-being in this digital era. And I just want to talk a little bit about some of them, and I'll just skip around. How about the second one, know thyself? I love that also from the ancient Greeks, I believe. Uh, know thyself. Uh, how how do we, Amy, how do we best get to know ourselves? It seems like such an obvious statement, right? That of course I know myself. I know myself better than anyone. But what the research from psychology teaches us is that we often have blind spots in our path that we can see information around us and yet we don't necessarily recognize it for what it is. And in that moment of blindness, there's information that other people know about us that we don't know about ourselves. So for instance, one of these biggest blind spots is our technology use. It is how often we're picking up our phone impulsively. And when I'm giving speeches to corporations, I'll often ask people, how often do you feel like you pick up your phone? And some people will say, oh, there's no way I pick it up 150 times a day. And, and like you said, Skip, oh, absolutely, I pick it up way more than that. We have this guesstimate in our head, but the truth is that our behavior will sometimes sneak up on us. And until we have data in front of us, it's really hard to know the truth. And so what I've done is personally experimented, but also taught numerous other people about the importance of tracking your statistics on your phone. 
Now, most of us can do this today through Apple Screen Time. Android has a great feature for tracking um, the number or the hours that you're spending on screen time. But there's been no app I've found that's better than Realized for helping with the impulsive checking. Um, because what Realized, the app does, is it, ch it checks how often you're picking up your phone and how long you're going in between phone pickups. And so... That's a slightly different metric because what it says to me is it is my self-control on just reaching for the phone. And what the research shows is that we continue to reach for our phones, whether or not we actually get a message or a phone call, we're checking because we're anticipating that we might be needed. And that is the feeling that is the most addictive quality of technology, not the actual message, the feeling of needing to be needed. And because that is something that is so pervasive in our society now, everyone has the same ding. So when you're out in public and you hear that text message ding that's now famous, everybody looks at their phone because we all think, oh, somebody needs me. <laughs> <laughs> so the key here is to figure out, is that something that you're playing into or are you actually being needed? Are you actually doing something that needs to be done? Um, the same thing goes for inbox checking with our email. We find that we are continuously checking our email. At least 50% of us say that we're continual checkers, and I am guilty of it myself. But the most efficient way to actually answer emails is by checking three times a day, batching that process. The reason why is because underlying this is that every time we get interrupted, with a message or an email that pops up, it takes us an average of 11 minutes to get back into flow of what we were doing before. So if you're doing the math with me, if it's 150 times of picking up your phone, say it takes you one minute to pick up your phone, that's two and a half hours of your day checking your phone. And if it takes you 11 minutes to get back into flow every time, the amount of time that we spend distracted is astronomical, which is why you can often be fine. You, you can find me. I'll be honest. You can find me sometimes wandering around my house thinking, okay, what was I doing again? <laughs> it's because I'm in a constant state of disruption and, um, and being distracted. And what my goal is through understanding myself through data is to know some really important information about who I am. And one of the things that I've learned through this process is that I check my phone less often than the average person. I actually only reach for my phone about 50 times a day, which sounds great. But before I pat myself on the back, my data actually shows that I get sucked in more than the average person. So once I unlock my phone, I'm suddenly in there for 30, 40 minutes before I realized that I wasn't doing what I intentionally set out to do. And for me to be the best leader that I can possibly be, my awareness of this, my awareness of the data and my response has to inform and has to shape my behavior. And that's been a huge turning point for me is to figure out, okay, if I want to accomplish these goals, something's got to give. And the opportunity cost of distraction is too high. That's not who I want to be. And so I encourage those of you who are listening to really take a moment, check your stats, try to understand what it says about your temptations, where you're going. And then see if it syncs up to who you want to be or if there's things that can give so that you can re reach more of your goals and reach more of your potential as well. Yeah, I love what you just said. See if it syncs up to who you want to be, because for me, sometimes I think, oh, I have the stats coming in. 
I'd rather not know. Ignorance <laughs> is bliss. <laughs> Thank you very right? much. I'm, I'm on to the next thing. And, and yet that can be so powerful to just think, is this lined up to who I want to be or not? Right. So if it's, if it's okay and that's what I'm doing and I feel aligned, that's one thing, but not, I, I'll tell you something else, Amy, that I uh, use, which is not technology, not an app, but just uh, my social awareness. Cause I'm a people watcher. If I go to a restaurant with my wife and you invariably look over and there's a couple or a couple of people or whatever, and one of them gets up and goes to the restroom or whatever. I watch and I start timing. Sometimes I literally click the timer on my phone, which I guess counts as a pickup. And I see how long is it before that other person picks up the phone mm. before they're, cause they're sitting alone it's and it's, <laughs> it's less than 10 seconds wow. on average. It's less than 10 seconds because mm. nobody can sit alone anymore. Right? <laughs> it's like, boom, you know, I, I get, I'm not going to sit here. So I pick up my phone and, uh, it, it's just interesting. I don't see anybody. Uh, do, I don't see any William Shakespeare's just writing sonnets <laughs> there at the table so they could get in your book in 200 years, but you know, whatever um, it is, it is interesting. So any, uh, while we're talking about apps, you talk about, I think you said realized, mm -hmm. is there any other app that is helpful for uh, increasing anything you use that, that increases either your productivity, happiness, just makes you generally cooler <laughs> Well, Lord knows I could use more of that. Um, but so I, uh, I actually one of my favorite gadgets that I've used that is tech based is called the Muse headband, and the Muse headband is when I say headband, it's I actually love the Muse oh headband. you've tried it oh it's crazy. oh I love it so it's this EEG strip for those who are listening and don't know um, that goes across your forehead and it tracks your brain activity while you're meditating. And it syncs to an app on your phone that's doing a guided meditation. And what's happening is it's tracking how often you get distracted in your thoughts. And it plays sounds like the ocean. And when you start to get distracted, the ocean rises. And your goal is to try to calm it with your breath and your focus. And of course, if you do a good job, there's this little bird that sings, which is gamified. So more birds is good which of course distracts you because you're like, yeah, I got another bird. And before you know it, you find yourself distracted again. So you have to recover and recover and recover your mind. So the strategy is not to meditate for longer. It is to recover your mind faster and more effectively than you have in the past. And for me, it was really interesting to see how hard it was for me to focus and sit still and do nothing else. And so because I am a bit competitive, I decided to do the muse with my entire family. And I have three young daughters and my husband, who's also competitive. And so we did competitive muse meditating. <laughs> and it was great because each of us got insight. We all developed a practice. We could see ourselves progress over time. But I also learned something really interesting, and that was that my children were innately better at focusing than I was, which was a shocker. I mean, I have one daughter who is super distractible, almost to the point of, of being attention deficit disorder, and um, she was the best out of all five of us. And so for me, it taught me the importance for her practicing this, but also that she has some innate skill that we begin to unlearn over time. Those kind of insights about who we are and how we can get better, for me, that is the heart of technology at its finest, when it's making us into better, more conscious, more aware people. And it's possible. It's not all bad. It's just finding the things that work well for you.
What I love about this insight into your family, Amy, is that we often think about happiness and well-being and we kind of think Zen and calm and meditation, but you have this fierce competitive side, right? So you're also driving for results. You're driving for achievements. You're trying to be productive. And that's the theme. That's what is the real interesting thing to me about your book is it's it's not just, oh, happiness and calmness and this, which we all aspire to, but it's also within the reality of the world we're in, which is still, you know, competitive. I, I've never heard about people using Muse headband in a com- <laughs> headband in a competitive way. So fantastic. Who oh, would have thought? Man. You know, uh, maybe they should have like a light for like who's winning or, you know, a little tracker on the uh, so, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I would love so. it. We used to compete for who we used to have a Prius and on the Prius, they track gas mileage. So my husband and I would always compete to see who could get the better gas mileage in the car. And, you know, we laugh about it, but this is, it's the good side of persuasive technology, right? We have a behavior we want to encourage such as gas um, conservation, and you just need to gamify it in a way that feeds the human nature and, so I, I lean into that. I say, absolutely, let's make it fun. This doesn't have to be about drudgery or stopping doing things that we really want to do. It's about growing as human beings and the idea that we can always get better at something. So we better have a good time while we're doing it, right? Like this is this is life. Let's live it. Let's live it. Well, I love this. And I can picture your husband desperate to win and pushing the car <laughs> and pushing the Prius just so that he can win at the end. So, yeah, this is a, this is one competitive, mindful family, I tell you. So, you know, part of your discussion on limiting, uh, on knowing thyself is limiting beliefs. And I really love that. I remember, uh, and this is memory from your book, but you you had this experience that I really related to, which was about a half marathon. And I've had people ask me and I've always said no, but you, they challenged you to a half marathon walk, which I love. And you're, it was a slippery slope. You're like, Oh yeah, okay. Uh I can do that. And then the next thing you know, (laughs) it's a run. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. And what can we learn from that? I think the process of training for a marathon, of course, has been used in all kinds of analogies for people. But I think the reason why it continues to emerge is because it is such an accomplishment to overcome your own mind limitations. We have these limiting beliefs that we start to say about ourselves that shape our behavior and what's possible. So I often hear people who will say, you know, I'm just not athletic. It's just not in my nature, or I'm not very funny. I'm just I I don't crack jokes. I'm not very social. I'm not good at math. You name it, I've heard it. And this is what Carol Dweck, the famous Stanford psychologist, would call a fixed mindset. And truly the roots of this emerged out of the field of education when in the race um, race for the moon and Sputnik, people began to try to jockey for position to show up in the world with the best ideas possible. And so we started all this IQ testing. And IQ testing was supposed to help us say, these are the best people to move our nation forward. So let's spend some more resources on those individuals as though intelligence was A, one dimensional and B, that it was fixed. And what we're learning through psychology is that absolutely the brain is not fixed. In fact, these MRI studies that have been taking place now show that 
meditation for six weeks can actually increase the gray matter in your brain once thought to be unchangeable. So all this time we've been basing hiring practices on IQ, but it turns out there's things that we can do with our behavior now that can help us not only overcome the limiting beliefs, but actually to supersede what we started with. And for me, that starts with awareness, but it also takes action and it takes a lot of social support. So when you hear me talk in the book about doing this half marathon, it would have never happened had a friend not gotten me trained with the right kind of shoes and brought me out and met me at my door to go walking and a whole group of people who started to pick me up on Saturday mornings to go for little jogs that turned into seven miles. I did not have that in my rubric of something I could do. And yet I did it. And it has become one of my greatest achievements because I knew that was such a steep path for me. So when I'm looking at other things, whether it was writing a book or starting my own company or becoming a speaker, things that I thought were far reaching, actually became more and more possible once I started to believe in myself and lean into my social network to make it happen. I love that. And you talk more about that. You pick it up in strategy number three, training our brains. Some people think we're born positive or we're born negative, or you know we have a happy disposition, we have a happy baby, or we're just morose and miserable. And you're talking about this research that says, no, you can, you can actually train your brain. We can make ourselves learn to be more positive. I know for myself, growing up, I thought, you know, you're not as positive as you should be. And I remember getting cassette tapes from the library, and I would listen to these positive thinkers and people who were talking about positive attitude, mm-hmm. and and it really impacted me. I don't know if I would be as positive as I am today. I don't know if I'm probably not the highest on the spectrum, but I'm a lot higher than I would be if I wasn't conscious of it. And so I think that's really important, but still so many people think it's fixed, right? Where there's no way we can't, we can't do it. There's nothing I can do. I'm born this way. And I find that to be such a terrible excuse because it's just not true. Yes. Well, the research is actually really clear that some people, believe it or not, are born happier than other people. It's true. There are some people who have a higher genetic set point for happiness. And there are a lot of people who have childhood experiences that make it that much harder for them to choose happiness. So I want to acknowledge that, uh, particularly in the field of mental health, we know that there are substantive challenges to happiness. Um, And it's not all about the feeling of happiness. For me, it's really about the feeling of striving after your potential. Um, That that is the experience of happiness. And what I've learned from positive psychology is that no matter where you start, it doesn't have to be the end of the story, that you can change and make a choice at any point in your life, no matter what is going on. It might be difficult. It might be more difficult than your friend but it is possible. And part of the way we know this is through research with identical twins where they have the same genetic set point. And by tracking choices made over time, researchers have learned that those individuals who've chosen positive typically have more successful and happier outcomes than the the identical twin. And I've actually had the opportunity to have a couple of these identical twins come up and talk to me after talks. And one of them told me, she said, Amy, you know, I always used my sister and I, we've always been negative, but I, I made a choice at some point in my life to become positive and my sister didn't. And I'm so sad, but her life has turned out so differently than mine because of that. And so 
we paused and I said, well, what was it that caused you to make this choice? And she thought about it for a few moments. And then she said, you know, it was probably that life-threatening car accident I was in when I was 16. And I realized that life was a gift. And my sister never had that opportunity. And I love that she called it an opportunity because for her, that was the turning point. It was a choice that she made and her life changed dramatically from there. And I've seen it in my own life as well. Both of my parents come from very challenging backgrounds and very negative backgrounds. And independently, they each chose to break from the the cycle of negativity to follow a different path. And then they found each other. And I feel like today, my brother and I, who are both now positive psychologists, have benefited immensely from the choices they made way back before we were born. And that legacy is something I hope to pass on to my children too, because it does tend to run in families. And if you are somebody that has grown up in a particularly negative family or a negative environment, it is that much more important for your future that you choose right now to start thinking about a different path for yourself. That is so fantastic. And it is true. I see people who are born with a happier disposition, et cetera, but life isn't over. It's the same with that twin sister. It's like, it's not over for her either, right? So she could still have some events, something could still trigger for her, even, even wherever her life is to get better, no matter what your age. I've seen people I've seen people do it. It's so amazing. I've seen people who retire and all of a sudden go from grumpy to amazingly motivated and they just Mm -hmm. change because they realize this is my last lap. I'm going to really make the most of it. And it's inspiring, right? When we see these people do this. It's a marathon. Um, That is their moment. And it it is an incredible accomplishment. Well, you talk about creating a, a habitat for, for happiness and, I'm thinking about how leaders do that, right? How how do you create a habitat for happiness in the corporate environment, like with your team, no matter what's going on in your company, no matter what the other departments are doing, no matter what the CEO is saying or what's going on in the market, how can you kind of create that place? Have you been uh, investigating and talking about that with, with these teams as you look at companies across the I world? I have. So I've worked with quite a few of the Fortune 500, and I've worked with organizations that are also very tiny, from small school systems and nonprofits all the way up to um, top of the S&P 500. And what I've discovered is that environment, cultural culture in a company does play a really important role in shaping how people create that habitat for happiness, um, but not as much as you would think. Despite the the amount that you hear from a corporation about the importance of culture, it turns out that only 10% of our happiness is determined by our environment. The other 90% is up to perception of the environment. So that's why when you're sitting in the same room with 100 other people, every single one of them will perceive what's happening in that moment just a little bit differently. Same as everybody who's listening to this podcast might remember a different uh, tidbit from it or a different um, tip to follow up on than somebody else. That's because we're all perceiving it differently and we come with a different past. So that being said, it is important to separate out this notion that your environment is the key determinant of your happiness. Actually, only 10%. The other 90%, we have something to do with. And so, yeah, right. And when we're thinking about as a leader, what we can do to shape 
that 10%, that culture piece, I wouldn't discount the importance of that 10%, particularly since we've been talking about digital distraction and well-being. I want to focus in on one strategy that I've been teaching um, a number of the clients I've worked with, and it's the idea of creating a tech charter, not for your whole company, but for your small team that you're working with. And what I mean by a tech charter is basically a communication document that works with your team to think about how you're communicating during work hours, after work hours, on vacation, on weekends. And yes, most corporations have some sort of dialogue within their teams about, okay, I'm picking the kids up at 6 p.m., but I'm going to come into the office a little bit earlier. Oh, and someone else has to work a little bit later. So that flexibility has been a lovely evolution in our corporate environment. But I don't think it goes quite far enough because what I'm learning recently is that the, there are regional differences, age differences, and industry differences in terms of how quickly you expect someone else to respond to you. And we make all kinds of assumptions about how that's going to happen. And so when I've so been looking at, at habitats lately, corporate habitats, one of the biggest detractors from happiness is this rub between people who think that other people should just understand that you don't CC everyone just for the sake of CCing it because it fills up their inbox. And somebody else... Say that again. <laughs> right? <laughs> and somebody else who sends FYIs to, um, to too many people who don't need an FYI or people who um, will think everything is urgent, but it's not truly urgent. And they, they might um, send a text message versus an email for urgent things um, that are not truly urgent. So these kind of interactions are one of the biggest sources of frustration for a number of companies Um we know that individuals who are in the legal department, finance department, and HR often expect a response within 15 minutes. But if you work in nonprofit or education, your usual expected response time is about a week. So if you are interacting across industries, it's important to understand that somebody may not understand your sense of urgency, or they might have a different approach. Fantastic. Right? That is So great. it's really important to talk about what what type of communication do you use for what types of events and what are your response time expectations? And the third one would be if you have digital boundaries, say you tell your employees, yeah, when you go on vacation, feel free to take a break and you don't have to answer messages. And yet there's that one person who keeps messaging you on vacation. What kind of recourse do you have to call them out for breaking that digital boundary. Um, typically, we just sort of get frustrated and disgruntled, but I think there's a role that we can play as managers to help stop passing, passing the buck down the line for some of these frustrations and say, hey, no, as a leader, I want you to respect other people's time. Don't message them on vacation. They have somebody set aside to do that. So message that person. And if you do that, then this is going to happen or this is what we expect. I truly believe that setting a tech charter is going to be one of the most effective ways to create a habitat for happiness. And I know this is a very tactical solution, but I want it to be tangible so that listeners could go back to their corporations or their teams and start to implement something right away that can start making a difference. I really, really like that. It's something I'm passionate about telling people this person's on vacation. I will send out emails sometimes and I'll pull them off of the email and say, notice I have not put yes. so-and-so on yes. because 
please do not, you know, add that person in. This was deliberate because, you know, sending that signal as the CEO is a, is an important one, I think, so that people realize this is important and people need, they need their, their breaks. That's fantastic. I also think the leaders, I love the 90% going back to that. It's one of the things I talk about. Jim Rohn has this quote, work harder on yourself than you do on your job. And as a leader, I think helping people with that 90%, you know, working on yourself and you need to take responsibility for some of this uh, happiness and, and setting those boundaries and doing those things too. You can't expect somebody else to solve all your problems. So that's good. Well, I want to, I want to end with one last area question. I, I'm really curious because about expectations and I'm going to link happiness and well-being and productivity with leadership and Amy Blankson. I'm going to link all those together in this way. Uh, it's often said about leaders that you can never have a bad day or the leader is always in the spotlight. And I'm always saying, yeah, but leaders are people too. They have bad days. Sometimes they sleep, uh, they don't sleep or they have stress and exhaustion, et cetera. It happens to all of us. You're a happiness <laughs> researcher. You've been with Oprah. You've been all over the world talking about happiness. So wherever you show up, Right. If I serve you a meal and I bring your drink and I dump the calamari all over you, whoops, <laughs> as I'm walking by the table, we expect Amy to just say, that's fabulous. Mm -mm. Right. I'm having a great day. You must feel that kind of expectation of being perfectly happy, uh, like leaders, right? Often feel like, oh, I can never have a bad day. How do you deal with that? Speak to the leader that feels that pressure of maintaining this. Uh, perfection level, and yet it's just not real and it creates its own stress. How do you maintain it and how do you deal with it in your own? Wow, I feel like trying to maintain that expectation would be such a burden. Um, I'm a big believer in authenticity and transparency. So if I'm having a bad day, you are going to know about it. <laughs> um, I often have a bad day and I try to use strategies I've learned, like rethinking stress to uh, overcome some of these side effects or the lingering side effects of getting truly frustrated. But I am by no means an expert. You have only to ask my husband. I'm sure he can fill you in. But I do think that the key is to keep trying because and to be transparent when you're not having those moments or when you struggled. So um, I know one of the things that I was a little shy about speaking about when I first started speaking about positive psychology was the fact that I actually, um, I take serotonin uh, boosters in the sense that I have experienced depression, I have anxiety, and that is something that has really helped me to be able to use some of the positive psychology strategies effectively. Was If I didn't take that, I'm not sure that I could actually actively use those type of strategies as well as I do today because I wasn't actually feeling like myself. And so I've become more and more transparent in my leadership by sharing with people that happiness sometimes means kind of uh, pushing through. And sometimes it means getting help and pushing through together. And I believe that the more that we can be real with each other about the struggles we go through and about the hard times and about not always trying to put on a happy face, but to be real and to choose positivity. But that doesn't mean to fake a smile. I think in the end, it will serve us better and it will be something that's more sustainable for the long run. Fantastic advice. And I hope everyone can understand why 
her advice is so compelling and this book is so compelling. My guest today, Amy Blankson, who's helping us all with happiness, productivity, well-being, and all of this in the digital era. She will help us by helping us to stay grounded, know ourselves, train our brain, create a habitat for happiness, innovate consciously. So many things and stories in this book that will help you. If you're somebody like that, we all go through these periods of anxiety and depression. We all go through stressful days and the the tactical ways out of it. It's always best to learn from somebody who's already gone up the mountain and been back. And Amy has done that, researched it, been there, studied it. And if nothing else, you can read and understand why Oprah called Bring Out the (laughs) Unicorn when she introduced her. So Amy, thanks so much for uh, joining us and for helping so many people across the world uh, change their attitude and increase their gratitude and increase their happiness. It's making a measurable impact and it's made a big impact on me personally. Thank you Thank you, you so, so much. much, Skip. It's been a real opportunity to join you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre. Always aim higher. Aim higher.